was a number of years ago, actually. Um, I think so, at least two, I think. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I was quite surprised during my sermon by the shortness of this pulpit. Um, if any of you are there remembering, this time I came prepared, not with a taller pulpit or with a shorter me, but just to simply not be surprised. So, Ephesians 5, 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's, that's it. That's what I'm going to talk to you about tonight. Uh, physical drunkenness versus spiritual drunkenness. And I want to read one more text just to supplement our reading of that text. And that text is Galatians 5.22. Uh, you don't need to turn there. Uh, you probably all know it by heart already. Uh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Let me pray for us one more time. I thank you, Father, for these people. We are prodigal sons. We are prodigal daughters. Prodigal mothers. And prodigal fathers. Lift up our weary heads to see you running. Always running towards us, your children. Rushing and flying to us, your prodigal people. Follow your words tonight with your spirit as you have promised us. Amen. Uh, briefly, because I want to sketch for you my, the outline of my thought real quick, because this sermon is going to follow uh, a, a stream of my thought that I hope that you can track with. And it's uh, what I'm going to do uh, first is describe very, very quickly the very first part of this verse. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. A very, we're going to skim very quickly over that. And then I'm going to, we're going to focus also very quickly on some tragically short-falling ways that this text has been handled, particularly in our group of Christians over time. And then I'm going to describe what the person that is filled with the Spirit in a way that, it, that Paul deliberately compares to being filled with wine. We're going to, be, I'm going to describe what that looks like for us real quick. And then, kind of working in reverse order, we're going to follow that all the way back to the task of filling ourselves with the Holy Spirit in such a way that it resembles an act of filling ourselves with a kind of wine. So we're going to move from a quick look at some of the negative aspects of this text uh, to the image of the drunk person to the act of drinking, the act of filling ourselves with the Spirit. The, a lot of ink has been spilled over the first part of this text, especially in the Baptist world. And I've just said that phrase, that expression, so one of the rules that we learn in preaching class is that you have to use that phrase once a sermon or it doesn't count. So, we're good to go now. A lot of ink has been spilled over that part of this text. Do not be drunk with wine, but, be, uh, but for that is debauchery. And it takes, it's a lot of wasted ink because that, it takes very, very little imagination to understand what that means. Very little. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Done. Easy. Um, the second part of this verse has also been handled somewhat negatively, and a lot of ink has been spilled on this text too. And now that I've used that phrase twice, my sermon counts for double. So I'm ahead of you. So I'm ahead of you, other guys. Um, the second part of this text has often been handled by looking from our denomination to other denomination, from our group of Christians to other groups of Christians, and from there asking ourselves, well, what does spiritual drunkenness, what does being filled with the Spirit, not look like? We, t- we can tell you what it doesn't look like because we see the way that it has often been abused in other parts of the Christian world. And then we kind of tend to leave it there. 
And that is, a, that is ink that has not been spilled in vain because that is a discussion that is worth having. The dangers need to be shown because danger is dangerous and it hurts people and it distracts people from the true goodness of spiritual drunkenness, of being filled with wine. And those two factors have combined to make this text kind of be seen as a text do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, a text that is about avoidance, a, temp- a text that is about sobriety, and a text that is about temperance. And none of those things are true. This is a text about indulgence. And that is what is often missed, is that this is a text about drinking deeply. It is not a text about moving from one kind of drunkenness to sobriety. It is a text about moving from one kind of drunkenness to a different kind of drunkenness. It is a text where God tells us what we are not to be filled with, and then he tells us what we are to be filled with instead. Instead of leaving us empty, he gives us something deeper and something richer to fill ourselves with in much the same way that it can be compared to filling ourselves with wine. So this is a contrast between physical drunkenness and spiritual drunkenness. Um, and this seems plausible by this, this. This does not contradict the way Paul opens this section of Ephesians with a strong urge, urge to be controlled and to be wise. I think this act of spiritual, spiritual drunkenness actually does not conflict with that. But that, but that, but that kind of makes this text, it kind of reinforces the idea that this text is about avoidance rather than indulgence. But in truth does not conflict with Paul's thought at all. He wants us to indulge. He wants us to come and drink deeply. I'm going to first describe uh, the image of a drunk person, and I'm going to show how the characteristics of physical drunkenness actually carry over into spiritual drunkenness in order to educate us what a person that is filled with the Holy Spirit looks like. And there are three, there are actually four, but I'm going to pause after the first three before I jump into the fourth. There are four aspects of physical drunkenness that are directly carried over. And they are enjoyment, control, and addiction. Wine makes the heart merry. We all know that. that the, the history of the world knows that. The history, our culture testifies to that constantly. Uh, it makes us happy, and it is enjoy. The pursuit of drunkenness has always, with wine, the pursuit of physical drunkenness has always been seen as a pursuit of a kind of pleasure. Whether or not we think that is a good kind of pleasure, uh, that's a different story. But it has always been framed as a kind of pleasure. You see the ancient Greeks and their god um, of Bacchus having, having festivals and parties that revolved around the consumption of wine and the merriment and the enjoyment that that brought. And that is exactly true also for spiritual drunkenness, for being filled with the Spirit. Isn't an, it's an act of enjoyment. It's an act, it's a pursuit of pleasure. It's a pursuit of being filled with something that makes us happy. And that's something, that's the first thing I want us to remember. Physical drunkenness, though, has also a more sinister side to it, as we all know. The first sinister side to physical drunkenness is control. It's when the, when the merriment and when the enjoyment of drunkenness with wine wears off, the person finds themselves under a sense of control. They can no longer make decisions correctly. They are haunted and chased by desires for the substance that they used to fill themselves with that no longer satisfies them, and instead it controls them. It distorts their perception. It distorts our, vi- our vision of reality. It impairs our ability to operate. And in that is also a sense of spiritual drunkenness, 
a sense of spiritual drunkenness. In the spirit, that, that idea is transformed from something that as the more we consume, the more we desire it. The more we find ourselves controlled by a desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit and with the things of God. The more we, fi- the more we find ourselves controlled by this substance that we are filling with ourselves with, we find that we are no longer to make, we are no longer able to make decisions the way we used to. We are no longer able to view reality the way we used to. Before we consumed the wine of God, before we had been filled with the Holy Spirit, we saw things one way and we operated one way, but the more of the Holy Spirit we fill ourselves with, the less we find we are able of pursuing things in our old way. The third idea is the idea of addiction. The person that has come under the influence of alcohol finds themselves addicted to it, finds themselves unable to escape it, finds themselves desiring it wherever they turn, finds themselves looking for it wherever they can and indulging it whenever they get the chance. And that image is also true of being drunk in the Holy Spirit, of being filled with the Holy Spirit. We find that once we have tasted and seen that it is good. Once we have tasted the things of God, we want it more and more. And we, can, we think about it more and more, and we desire it, and we pursue it with the energy of an addict. Um, as I was turning over these ideas in my head uh, before, before I get to the fourth characteristic of drunkenness, I, uh, the, the, the connection between, this is where the connection between the idea of being filled with the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit struck me. And it struck me with this simple poetic phrase, the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the vine. That was so neat. The fruit of the Spirit contrasted with the fruit of the vine. But I realized the more I thought about that, that as neatly and as, as memorably as those two ideas stacked up next to each other, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the vine, it's so catchy, it, it flows so nicely, but it doesn't, they don't match up quite so clean. And the key, is, the key to that mismatch there is this, that the fruit of the vine is not drunkenness. The fruit of the vine is grapes. The fruit of the wine, the fruit of the vine is wine. And that itself is not drunkenness. A drunk, a physically drunk person is not a grape, and they are not a bottle of wine. But a spiritually drunk person is the fruit of the spirit. They are love, they are joy, they are peace, they are patience, they are gentleness, kindness, and self-control. The fruit of the wine, of uh, the fruit of the vine is not drunkenness. The fruit of the Spirit is the drunkenness. That is what being filled with the Holy Spirit looks like. It looks like exactly that list of characteristics. Being addicted to that list of characteristics. Love, joy, peace, patience. Being filled with those things. Being under the influence of those things. Pursuing, chasing, and thinking about those things. Which brings us to the fourth aspect of drunkenness. Unusual behavior. The primary aspect of drunkenness is unusual behavior. A physically drunk person behaves so unusually that there are certain things that they are not allowed by the law to do. And this is such a commonly recognized feature that when we find ourselves in our daily life exposed to some one of our friends or one of our loved ones who is behaving very, very strangely, we might ask them the question, are you drunk? This isn't the you I recognize. Are you drunk? You're behaving very unusually. You're behaving very strangely. You can't even walk straight. You can't even talk straight. You're not making your decisions right. You're not able to do the things that you used to be able to do. 
you are behaving unusually. The spiritually drunk person, the person that is filled with the Holy Spirit in the way that Paul imagines when he is talking to the Ephesians, is stumbling and mumbling out of their old selves all over the place. They used to walk in unlove. You used to be a person that when I knew you, you were not loving. You were bitter. And you were angry. And you were not joyful. And you were not patient. And you were stressed. And you were full of anxiety. But now I see you not even able to control yourself. And all of a sudden you're stumbling out of that straight line of lack of love that you used to be able to walk like a bullet. And you're stumbling out of it in love all over the place. You're tripping and you're mumbling. And you're no longer able to talk the way you used to talk. You used to talk so non-gently and so violently and so aggressively, but now I see you mumbling and you sound gentle and you sound kind and you sound good and you sound like the Holy Spirit. The person, the person that is drunk with wine is constantly stumbling out of the ways that they're so used to being able to control their own walk in. They used to be able to walk straight down that line of non-lovingness and straight down that line of non-joyfulness and straight down that line of impatience and greed and all those things that contrast with the fruits of the Spirit, and they just can't anymore. Because the more they fill themselves with the fruit of the Spirit, the more they can no longer walk according to their old ways. It makes it the more you consume, the more difficult it is to walk in those old ways. And it it startles people. They look at you and they're like, this is not the you that I know. You're under the influence of something. Something has gotten into you. Something has filled you. In order to taste this wine at its source, now that we've seen what the spiritually drunk person looks like, in order to taste this wine at the, at the source, we have to know that this is not just being filled with the fruit. It's being filled with the fruit of a specific spirit, the fruit of the spirit. This is not being filled. Paul does not want us to be filled with love. He does not want us to be filled with joy. He does not want us to be filled with patience. He doesn't want us to be filled with kindness, goodness, or self-control. He wants us to be filled with the love of the Spirit. He wants us to be filled with the joy of the Spirit, and the patience of the Spirit, and the kindness of the Spirit. You can fill yourself with those things and not that Spirit. You can do that. It's possible. You can be a very loving person without the love of the Spirit. You can be a very joyful person and it not be the joy of the Spirit. You can go down this whole list, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, and you can have all those things in your life. But unless they are from this Spirit, they will fail both in their completeness and in their outcome. The absolute best-case scenario, the greatest amount of success you can have by filling yourself with the fruit but not the Spirit is that right up until the point of death, you could live a good life, kind of. That's the best possible case scenario, which, as we all know, is not the one we usually encounter as we go through this world. The best possible way life you could have by filling yourself with fruit, this exact same fruit, but not the fruit of this spirit, is that right up until the grave, things could go well for you. Well, in quotation marks. But what the fruit of the Spirit does, what the Spirit does to these characteristics that we're all so familiar with, is he makes them fruit that once they fill us, and once we sow them down deep in our hearts, and once we begin to know and be filled with the fruits of this Spirit, it takes us a level beyond that. 
a level beyond death. The only, the, we, can, we can have good lives, and we can even improve society. We can improve ourselves with the fruits, but we cannot overcome death. And we cannot recreate this world. But if we fill ourselves with the fruit of the Spirit, the outcome becomes that we are raised to life after death. And this world is recreated. Recreated in full beauty and full goodness in, in the way that only the spirit that produces this fruit can recreate it. It takes us beyond death. I'm talking about resurrection from the dead. Literally, you come back to life when you die, when you get this fruit from this spirit. And you do not get that unless you get this fruit from this spirit. Uh, to, to look at this, to, this highlights kind of the strangeness of this fruit. We've all become familiar with these categories, love, joy, peace, and patience. But the truth is that these things are all actually very strange, despite how familiar we've come with them. And, and, it, and it takes looking at them as they find their origin in the Spirit, in God, as we, as we look to God and we see the way He first displays love, and then calls us to be filled with that love. And we look to him and we see the way that he first displays joy and then calls us to be filled with that joy. That act of looking and seeing those fruits as they're growing and overflowing and filling God himself, that act of looking to those things is the act of drinking the wine. That looking to how God first is the God of these fruit. God is so full of the fruits of the Spirit it's amazing. They are his fruit. No one loves like God loves. Excuse me. No one has joy like God has joy. No one has patience like God has patience. And so let us look together for this last stretch of my sermon at how this act of drinking plays out by looking and seeing these things in God himself. Um, the act of looking is the act of drinking. It's not just love that God, displayed, that God has. God is love. He is, he is so much love. But it's not just love. It's a special, strange, and eye-catching, and startling love that sits in heaven, looking down on a world that has plunged itself in darkness because of its own sin. Because of our sin, what we have done, we have plunged our lives and this world into darkness and chaos. We have separated ourselves from the light of the loving God. We are the ones that have created this mess. We are the ones that have offended God. Uh, and he is the one that sits up there righteous and holy and looking down on this dark and chaotic pool that we are all here in. And what does that love do? It dives straight into that darkness itself because it is not content to see us staying down there. Jesus himself, God of very God, comes straight into that darkness, born as a baby on a dark night, as a helpless baby in Bethlehem. That's what Christmas is about. It's about God, God's love coming into this darkness to pull us out. Those of us that created it, not those of us that are victimized by it, though we are all victimized by it, we are also its creators. We are the creators of the darkness and the chaos. We are the sinners. And he came to pull us out of the darkness, to break that darkness and fill it with light, to pull us out in his love by dying on a cross. And by dying on the cross, thus go deeper into that darkness and into that chaos than you or I will ever be called to go. 
Not only does the love of God, the love that is overflowing with God that he calls us to drink from, not only does that love of God come into the darkness, but it goes deeper into the darkness than you or I have ever gone. And it pulls those of us who trust in him out with him, in to live with him in life forever. And all of a sudden when we find ourselves under the influence of that love, that's when we find ourselves doing strange behavioral things like laying down our lives for others and forgiving our enemies and doing things that people look at you and they're like, are you drunk? Did you just forgive your enemy? That person that hurt you so much, did you just forgive them? Are you laying down your life for your spouse when you have so much that you want to live for? Are you, are you a loving person? That seems that that's, that's when, when, we, when we become under the influence of God's strange, intoxicating love is when we begin to behave in those ways. Um, and that's only one of the lists so far. This is a long list. Um, what about the fact that God has been forever joyful in perfect, in unhindered, in untainted, unpolluted joy? A joy that has no threat of defeat. A joy that has no threat of end that no trial can interfere with this joy. James says, be joyful even in trials. And, and there is no trial that God could experience that could overwhelm his joy. Not even the trial of death on a cross. Not even the trial of betrayal by his loved ones. Not only the trial of walking through the world that he created as an innocent person, only be, to be dragged by those he loved to a cross and nailed to it and dying. Not even that trial could overwhelm the joy of God. And it was not like God pretended that he wasn't sorrowful during that time. Jesus, God of very gods, cried drops of blood, uh, sweat drops of blood, rather, and cried tears of sorrow during that time. But those tears and that sweat did not drown his joy because he knew that no trial could could, could drown out that joy, could drown out the joy of God. And that's the joy that you and I are called to look at and drink from so that when we are called to endure trials with joy, not by pretending that trials aren't happening, not by pretending that we're not sad, not by ignoring sadness and ignoring sorrow and ignoring ignoring those things that interfere with our joy, but by looking to God, the original and most joyful person who endured the most hard trials that anyone has ever had to endure. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves being joyful when everyone around us looks at our life and says, why are you joyful right now? You have so much to be non-joyful over. Uh, let me count the ways, like that famous uh, poem. You know, how do I love you? Let me count thy ways. Let me count the ways. And we could look at each other and say, how many ways are there that you should not be joyful? I could make you a whole list. I could certainly do for, so for my own life. I could do so for some of your lives in here that I happen to know. And I could give you a whole long list of ways that you have, that, a whole long list of reasons that you should not be joyful, and then I could give you one reason that you have to be joyful. And that one reason, the joy of God, drowns out all those other reasons. And it's eye-catching. It's eye-catching. It's strange. Paul himself, Paul himself um, described it as this, sorrowful, but always rejoicing. It's a joy that no sadness can drown. Tim Keller um, is... is uh, so well said it's a joy that endures because only joy will endure and all threats to joy will not endure all the sad things will come untrue 
joy will not. Joy will endure forever and ever. And the peace of God. The book of Isaiah tells us that those of us that fill ourselves with God, that stay our mind on God, it's the same thing. It's the same act of, of, of drinking that Isaiah is there describing. The mind that is set on God um, is filled with a peace that surpasses understanding. It's a peace that is so strange, it's just like that joy. People look at it and they're like, I do not understand why you're joy, why you're peaceful right now. Are you drunk? We see uh, that on display in the story of the, uh, the story of Jesus calming the sea. But where we see that on display in that story is not where we're used to thinking we see it. We do not see the peace of God that surpasses understanding on display when Jesus stands up in that boat and said, "Waves and wind, be still," and that that shrieking, blowing billowing storm turned to smooth seas and adjusted the response to his word. That is not where we see the peace that surpasses understanding. Where we see the peace that surpasses understanding is when we see the disciples looking at Jesus when the wind, when the storm was in its full force. What was he doing? He was sleeping. Jesus had that peace at that moment. And that was the moment that defied where there was a peace that was present that the disciples did not understand. They did not understand how God could be at peace when the storm was blowing. They didn't understand how he could be so at peace when he was surrounded by such chaos. That right there is the moment where the peace precedes understanding. That uh, surpasses understanding, rather. That's why Jesus, when the disciples waking him up, wake him up and they say, do you not care that we're dying? He marvels at them. He says, what? Don't you get it? The peace is here already. The storm is no threat to you. But so that you can understand it, I'll bring this peace down a notch for you and calm the storm. It's the peace that is at peace during the storm. And that will one day be expressed by the final and complete stilling of all storms. That is the peace of God. That's the peace that we drink from. That's the peace that gives us the strength to be peaceful in storms. The patience of God is a fun one because we like to think we're patient sometimes and we like to give ourselves little, little, uh, little rewards when we think we've done something that's so incredibly patient. I work in, in Starbucks and I've been working at Starbucks for a long time and sometimes I think I am so patient when I endure one hour of being hit by wave after wave of rude customer, uncaffeinated rude customer demanding their coffee and without smiles and without, thank, without gratitude and um, without appreciation, and I say, look, I, look, God, I have gone one hour and I have not thrown coffee on one of these people. Halo, please, right now. I am so patient. Much less a whole day, a whole eight-hour shift of this. You know, I've, I've been doing this for nearly ten years, and I, have, I can tell you confidently I have never once on purpose dumped coffee onto a customer. And so I look, I'm ready, I'm ready to award myself with patience. I'm ready to say, I am patient. I am, I am, I am patient right now. We, can, we call ourselves patient when we drive through a traffic jam without making improper gestures or saying improper words to other people. Um, or maybe, again, that's just me. I don't know. Um, we count ourselves patience when we endure a day uh, without rebuking our spouse for doing that thing that they always do, that they know bugs us, and, and it gets, gets right to it. You know, we get through a day and we're like, oh, what a, well, how great am I that I did not lose patience with my spouse. Um, my spouse is lucky because she does not have a, a spouse that has any such quirks that she needs to test her patience by. Love you. Love you. 
Um, no, of course she does. Um, surely she does, of course, in ways that defy even my own imagination. Um, we consider we are, it's so easy to consider ourselves patient, but then suddenly when we think about the patience of God and what he has had to endure in leading his sheep through the wilderness. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and he is the most patient shepherd, always catching us out of danger. Because we don't, we're not just slow sheep. We are slow sheep, but we're not just so slow sleep. Sometimes we're backwards sheep. Sometimes we're not the sheep that's going slower than all the other sheep. Sometimes we're the sheep that's running the wrong way. We don't just stray into danger. We run into danger. The Israelites themselves in the story of Exodus saw God with their eyes part the Red Sea so that they could walk through on dry land and lead them there by a towering pillar of fire. Lead them through the ocean on dry land safely. A huge number of them. Bring them up on the other side. Close that sea up on top of all their enemies. Feed them with water in the wilderness. Bring manna down from heaven. Um, And yet, they were so quick to build themselves a statue of a cow and say, look, there he is. He's the one who did it. They saw it with their eyes. And God has been patiently enduring that people because that stubborn, stiff-necked people that we are, so slow and so, and so stubborn in our slowness, but I tell you one, one thing that is more stubborn than our own stubborn and slow hearts that are so stubborn and slow to follow after God, God's patience. It's stubborn. It will not give up on you. It has not given up on you yet. I've been alive 31 years, and some days I am just shocked that God has not given up on me. That this good shepherd has not just left me so far behind the other sheep. And that's, with, that's just with me. And we could all echo that sentiment in ourselves. Much less the whole chorus of all the sheep in the whole world, including the ones that rebelled and worshipped the golden calf after watching God part the Red Sea with their own eyes. And he's been doing that ever since Adam and Eve left the garden. That is patience. That is patience that will see this work all the way clear through to the end. We don't even know what real patience is until we start to drink from it from the the heart of God. The kindness of God in coming down from heaven, the very Son of God, to dine with prostitutes and sinners and touch the sick and love the unlovable. We consider ourselves kind when I hand that person, like me, I hand that person with a coffee with a smile instead of pouring it on them, on their briefcase or on their cell phone or something. And I'm like, oh, yes, I'm so kind. But God is so kind to his people. Not only does he perfect, not only does the perfectly clean and righteous son of God come to earth, but he comes to take all of our unrighteousness and all of our sin and all of our filth upon himself rather than, rather than consider himself kind just to be with us. How kind it was of me to go to dinner with Zacchaeus. How kind it was of me to spend time with these 12 men. But he takes all of their sin, all of our sin upon himself. In addition to simply being in our company, he takes our sin upon himself and he bears it away. He casts it as far as the east is from the west so that he no longer remembers it. And that is the kindness of God. The goodness of God. All things that we call good down here 
are but the dimmest reflections of God's goodness and God's beauty seen through the darkest of glasses. And we see a lot of goodness down here. We see a lot of it. Sometimes the amount of goodness we see is staggering. I start to think immediately of cliches that are, that are good cliches for a reason, like, like baby's laughter and ice cream and fresh rain and the, smell of, and the smell of a cut lawn and the forgiveness of one person to another and love and joy and peace and a good book and the overcoming of obstacles and courage and endurance and healing and a good friend. And they're everywhere. You look and see goodness everywhere. And these are nothing compared to the goodness of God. And I don't say that to make these instances of goodness seem smaller, but only to kindle your imagination to try to imagine that if in these things the goodness of God is just dripping through, what must that ocean of goodness behind those images of goodness be like? And what must it be like to experience that goodness? And what happens to our lives when we begin to fill ourselves with that goodness? We begin to overflow with goodness towards others. So that they look at us and they're like, what is wrong with you? Why are you being so good? Why are you being so good to that person that doesn't deserve it? Why are you being so good? It's because we're under the influence. Um, I'm going to get, here's, an, here's a little image of that in my own life. It's a little bit embarrassing. I think there's only one person in this room that knows this is true about me. If you, if you can forget all of the over-merchandising of this movie that has happened, forget that for a moment, and think of the movie Frozen with me. Don't think of walking through Target or Walmart and seeing Frozen stuff coming at you from all possible angles, even the ceiling. You're like, why are there Frozen stuff up there? Don't think about that. Every time that movie plays, and if you haven't seen it right now, I'm going to ruin it for you. I'm sorry. You've had your chance. You've had your chance. In that simple act in the end of that movie, when Elsa realizes that love thaws the frozen heart, hearts begin to thaw all around her. And not only do hearts begin to thaw, but the whole world around her, which was covered in ice and snow, suddenly thaws and becomes new and becomes full of love. And I can't help but tear up at that one small instance of goodness that I see in that movie. And if that is even a small hint of what it's like when God unfreezes the heart, the frozen heart of a sinner that has been captured by its own ice and stuck in there for so long, and then when the Spirit of God fills it and thaws it and doesn't stop there but begins to thaw the whole frozen world and fill it with love as he will one day do perfectly and fully. How much, if I cry during that little movie, how much more so, how much more amazing is it going to be when God finally completes this movement of love? This thawing movement of love. Don't tell anyone, but I cry during that movie. And I do every time. Every time. I'd, sometimes I try to steal myself up, and then as soon as she says, of course, love, and the music starts, and the ice starts melting, I'm just like, oh my gosh. Don't tell. See, it's our secret. All right. The faithfulness of God. God is the original promiser in this world. No one made a promise before God did. And he has, um, he responded to the sin of Adam and Eve with a promise, a promise that he would not let sin win the day. That their ruining of the Garden of Eden was not the end. 
And the whole story of the Bible is about how God is faithful to his promises no matter how far his people wander from him. He is faithful to pursue them to the uttermost. He is faithful to fulfill his promises to bring them back. No matter how much they try and stop him, no matter how much they put in his way, there is nothing that threatens God's ability to fulfill his promises to his people. And when we start to fill our hearts with that very same faithfulness, we find ourselves being faithful to others in our lives. When once we might have struggled with faithfulness, he fulfills it even to death on a cross. He is so, so adamant about fulfilling his promises that he himself will even go into the world and die himself to fulfill his promises. The last two are kind of the hardest. One from the human standpoint and one from the standpoint of God. But they are just as important as the others. Gentleness is the hardest one to grasp from a human standpoint. Does it refer to physical gentleness? Spiritual gentleness? A combination of both? It's tough to describe. That's why it often gets, doesn't get preached on as much. doesn't get talked about as much when we talk about this list. And I have a trouble describing it myself. But I tell you what, I know it when I see it. I know it when I feel it. There is nothing like a spiritually gentle person. It's, one of the, it's, it's amazing when you see it. Um, the, the, faith, the gentleness of God is seen in the book of Isaiah when, God, when, when Isaiah is prophesying about the servant of God. He says he, and he's talking about Jesus here, is uh, he will not break a broken reed. That little reed on the side of that lake that is so weak that it is bent over broken and it's just hanging on by one little fiber. He cares about it so much that he will hold it and he will fashion it anew rather than simply fashioning it, fast, simply snapping it off. He is the gentle redeemer. The other image in that, the other image in that same verse is that he will not uh, quench a smoking flax. A tiny little wick of a candle sticking up out of the top of that candle that's almost spent. It's just that little plume of smoke. He will fan it into a flame and he will not quench it. He will bring it back to life. He is the gentle God. Self-control is the hardest one to think about in terms of God. What does God's self-control look like? It, seemed, it seems at first difficult to even imagine this one being a part of God, because what does God need to control? He doesn't, have a, he doesn't have faults that bubble up in him and that cause him to lose control. He doesn't have any of those things, so why does he need self-control? He doesn't have deeply ingrained patterns of suffering that, that prohibit him from, at times, from being his full self. He doesn't, he doesn't need to put work into controlling certain aspects of his life. He doesn't have those interferences which is that we struggle with down here and that we need to exercise self-control for. So how does God have self-control? In reality, though, it is God's perfect and unfailing self-control that assures us that things like his love and his joy will never fail. They cannot be threatened by anything. They cannot be threatened by anything. There is no possibility of God's love giving way to hate. Not because he has hate in himself and he controls it perfectly. Or because his, or there's no threat of his joy giving way to sadness or his goodness to badness or all down the list. Not because he has those things in himself and he has them perfectly controlled, but because he has none of these things in himself at all and is therefore perfectly capable of permanently extending 
relentless, running, pursuing, undying love towards us that has absolutely no question about its failure at all. All of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, are flowing from God towards us like a flood in such a way that because of his perfect self-control is able to keep them perfectly, perfectly aimed at us and trained on us and unrelenting from us throughout the entire course of eternity without any threat of change. In other words, God's self-control is another way of saying God's trustworthiness. How can you trust God's love? Because it will not fail. How can you trust God's because it will not fail ever. We can trust all that he is towards us because it will never fail and it will never change. So what you are to do then, the whole point of this, is what you are to do is to look at your God. Look at your God. Look at all these things. Look at his Son. Look at his Spirit in all of their overflowing and glorious and unrelenting fruits coming at you like a flood. And if you have not looked at Christ before and seen him as the ultimate expression of all the fruits of the Spirit of God aimed towards you and coming towards you for your fullness in the Spirit, for the transformation of your life, for you to be under the influence of, then look to him now. And if you have looked to him already, then keep on looking and don't stop looking and keep on drinking. And don't stop drinking. Do not hold yourself back from looking at this God. Do not find yourself, uh, do not find yourself thinking that you need to wait until you're better, or that you need to fix yourself up until you go to God to look at Him, or until you go to God to drink from Him. Because you won't. Do not find yourself thinking that you need to buy it. Do not find yourself thinking that you need to earn it. The Apostle John, in the, book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, the last chapter, tells us that all we need to do is thirst and look and buy the wine without price. That's the image he uses. He uses the same image that Paul is using, the same image that I'm using. He says, let the thirsty come and buy wine without price and indulge. Don't buy like it's going out of style. Buy like it's free and it's endless. That's what John is telling If you have not looked to Christ tonight, have never thirsted for the Spirit, please, please talk to someone if you need to as you find that Spirit leading you. And buy that wine without price. Please pray with, please pray with me in closing. Father, there are people in this room that could testify that I am the soberest one here. Help my sobriety. Help my unbelief. Help my unthirst, Lord. Help all of us. Help all of our unbelief. Help all of our unthirst. Create in us thirst if it has not existed before and increase in us. Increase in us thirst if it exists in our hearts already and fill us with your wine till our cups overflow and we can say we are under the influence of the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit and we will stumble out of our old selves 
into this world all over the place, filling it with more fruit, multiplying and increasing until the day when you will fill this whole world and recreate it anew. In your precious Son's name, amen.